This is the STEM Read Podcast. Welcome to the STEM Read Podcast. In each episode, we interview an expert and an author to explore the connections between stories and STEM. Hi, I'm Jillian King-Cargyle. I am a writer, a book lover, and the director of Northern Illinois University's STEM Read. And I'm Dr. Kristen Brennison, otherwise known as Hot Pink Tech. I am an educator, an engineer, and the director of professional development for NIU STEAM. Today we're going to explore the connections between STEM and storytelling. We'll find out how Meow Mix and Jurassic Park led me to become a writer while my good friend Erica Gable-Berg went on to study biophysics. Erica's going to share her path to science and tell us which element is the sluttiest. I always wondered that. I know you did. Then we'll talk to Mike Mullen, author of the Ashfall series from Tanglewood Press. He'll share his thoughts on research tangents, cannibalism, and tell you if you would survive the apocalypse. I would not. I can tell you right now, it would not work out for me. Me either, but I think I'm delicious. I don't like eating outside or bugs. Yeah, that'd be a problem. Yeah. I don't even know that I'd want to survive the apocalypse. But we'll find out. Who knows? Who knows? Who knows on the STEM Read podcast? So people always ask me, why pair fiction books with science? Why is there a connection? And I think it all goes back to Jurassic Park and Meow Mix. Obviously, right? Uh, Obviously? Obviously. So when I was in school, I loved science. I loved biology. I loved all the stories that you could learn in biology. I loved reading about marine biologists like Whip Darling, the guy who fought a giant squid with a chainsaw in Peter Benchley's The Beast. Of course. Non-required reading. And I also, I loved the stories that you'd learn about about plagues. I wanted to be an epidemiologist and figure out, you know, the connection between tiny flies that could transmit parasites and cause sleeping sickness and river blindness and all the the gross worms that they would twist out of you with a stick. And I wanted to know why the monkey could kill Kevin Spacey in Outbreak. So I really loved science until I got to chemistry. And chemistry, my teacher would blow things up, which was awesome. But then we'd have to do all the formulas to figure out why things blew up. And that wasn't awesome. That was math. That's math. They tricked us. It was a bait and switch. So I was not doing well in chemistry. So in AP chemistry, I was looking for someone who was taking good notes. And I saw my friend Erica. And she was taking some notes, man. She was writing and writing and writing. And I was like, I'm going to ask her. So at lunch, I asked her for her notebook. And she was like, sure, absolutely. She handed it to me. And she was smiling. I'm like, yes, she knows about chemistry. This is going to work out. And then I opened the notebook. And it just said meow, 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 over and over, page after page, (laughs) meow. And I handed it back to her and I was like, what is this? What are you doing? And she just looked at me and she said, meow, 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 mix. I don't care about chemistry. So I was like, oh my gosh, I'm going to fail. You're going to, you're clearly going to fail. This is not going to go well for us in life. Enter Jurassic Park. So Jurassic Park by Michael Crichton is one of my favorite books. I like dinosaurs. I've always been a dinosaur girl. Erica loved it too. And when I think about her in high school, I just think about her carrying around the book all the time, like a badge. I don't I don't know that she really did that. I probably couldn't prove that she did that, but that's how it, she, <laughs> like, in my, yeah, like I'm reading Jurassic Park. <laughs> she said to me one day, she's like, scientists could potentially make dinosaurs. I was like, maybe. And she was like, scientists are amazing. I'm going to be a scientist. And I said, 
Good luck with that, meow. But uh, she did. uh, She actually cracked down in chemistry and passed. And she went on to the University of Wisconsin and then on to Johns Hopkins. And she now has a PhD in biophysics. Wow. Not bad, right? No, that's 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 pretty impressive. From meow. Uh, Yeah. From meow to now. Is she Dr. Meow? She is Dr. (laughs) Meow. Meow. So I believe that she would not be a scientist today if not for Jurassic Park. We're going to talk to my friend Erica and test that hypothesis as we explore the connections between science and storytelling on the STEM Read podcast. Hi, Erica Gableberg. I'm a science and medical writer, PhD in biophysics. So I, you know, I have my impressions of what you were like in high school, but what kind of student would you say you were in high school? I was a student who was maybe a little lazy, I would say. Um, I'm fortunate to have, or at least did have, a very good memory, and things came relatively easily to me. And so I think I didn't necessarily apply myself. But I was also very passionate about science at the same time, since I was, you know, three or so, I think. Whenever anyone asked me what I wanted to be, I wanted to be a scientist. So While I might not have been the hardest worker, I was lucky in that I was smart and that I knew exactly what I wanted to do. So I think those two together sort of carried me through high school pretty well. I think you were apathetic, I'd say. There was nothing in high school that really interested you. You were Mm -hmm. always very smart. You know, I'd get an A on something and you'd get an A plus and you'd be like, I didn't even try. And I'd be like, okay. (laughs) Thanks. Thanks. Um, Because I'm a jerk. (laughs) Yeah, well, your words, not mine. (laughs) But I I think that it's interesting. We we both loved science, but I kind of dropped off the science grid, I'd say, science word, um, when when we got to chemistry. And I think we both struggled in chemistry. The you know, the meow mix story. That makes me sound a little bit like the guy in Shining. So maybe I blocked <laughs> that out. All, all work and no myself. play. Make Erica. Yeah, makes, <laughs> meow, meow, meow. Yeah. <laughs> Crazy cat lady in training. So I want to ask you what you remember about our, our Briff and Cliff notes. So so we, we had to study. We were in a chemistry class. We had to take a quiz on the periodic table. And so mm-hmm. instead of actually studying, what we did was we created this story about all of the different elements and whether they were good or evil was based on whether they were positively or negatively charged. I think we together wanted to figure out the most fun way to learn the periodic table of elements in a way that we didn't actually learn anything, (laughs) but could still pass our tests. I think we were learning about halogens, bromine, fluorine, iodine. And so we squashed their letters together of the halogens to create these two characters, Briff being bromine, iodine, and fluorine, and then Cliff being chlorine, iodine, fluorines. So way over on the other side of the periodic table are sodium, Na, and lithium, Li, Nali. So those two elements, they're just kind of promiscuous with their electrons. Um, And I don't know if we got into that with Nali because she was a princess in our eyes. She was a bit, you know, she gave it away pretty easily when it came to electrons. Yeah. Wait, is this a children's podcast? Uh, no, it's fine. <laughs> I mean, she, she was the sluttiest element. <laughs> uh, There's always one. Absolutely. But, 
But on the other side, so Griff and Cliff being halogens or electronegative, and, and so that means they're very electron hungry. So they really wanted to get into Nolly's pants, if you know what I'm saying. <laughs> um, Periodic tabley speaking. So I find it very interesting that you both talk about how you were lazy students and that this was a trick, but listen to how you guys are still talking about this so many years later and remember all the details. Right. I I feel like this took way more effort than it would have to actually learn the periodic table. Mm, Um, Right. But you've learned it in such a deeper way. Yeah. You're more connected to those elements than you probably (laughs) would have been if you just memorized them. Yeah. Yeah. that these stories are what stay with us, you know. That's right. <laughs> I don't remember about any of the other elements, right? Yeah. They're unimportant. They're secondary so, characters. So so I think that's really interesting because I, you know, I loved science. I loved biology, but I didn't ultimately become a scientist. I became a writer. I latched on to the storytelling aspect of it. And you went the other way. You became a scientist. And then you kind of roundabout became the writer. I feel like we kind of branched off and and then kind of ended up at at very similar spots. So what was it that made you take the science path? I really loved science. It never occurred to me to do anything else. So as soon as I was done with high school, I went to University of Wisconsin-Madison, where they have a strong biochemistry program. However, when I first entered Wisconsin, I went into the field of genetics also based on a story because Jurassic Park had a really big influence in my formative years and sort of guiding me toward the more biological sciences. But after reading Jurassic Park, I was like, genetics, that is where the dinosaurs are. You, you went to college and you're like, show me the dinosaur, uh, mm-hmm. the path to where making dinosaurs, <laughs> please. Yeah. You know, over the course of a few years, I became more interested in not only biochemistry, but I also ended up majoring in history of science. Because again, I think it's just, I love science, but I also love the story of science, the telling stories about science. And, and sort of history of science sort of gave me that richer context in which to do science. Doing science is just so much fun, especially it was as an undergraduate. I joined up in a lab my second year there where they just sort of let me roam free among these giant magnets that were sort of hyper-cooled with liquid nitrogen and liquid helium. And I could sort of explore protein structures with these giant magnets. And I'm like, I don't know why you guys are giving me the keys to these big magnets that are a million dollars, but thank you, and I'll do my best not to break them. So how do scientists feel about the portrayals of themselves in science fiction? Is it accurate? (laughs) Is it inaccurate? Do you have a favorite science fiction person that you would want to be? Oh, gosh. Typically, scientists in pop culture films tend to be not particularly likable people. Uh, usually have <laughs> they're the bad guys ulterior motive uh-huh. I guess the exception might be an Iron Man situation I think Iron Man is a a win for the science you know he's good looking he he's incredibly rich. wealthy <laughs> he's got that cool suit and you know he's a super nerd I, I would definitely take a ride in that suit <laughs> <laughs> I'd act like Nolly in that suit oh <laughs> I never thought about Iron Man. I think about him all the well, time. Well, I never, I guess I never <laughs> thought of him. He's, I've thought of him as an innovator. 
I do think of him a lot. Well, in- now we start to cross between the crossing the lines between engineers and scientists oh. and where we connect. Mm-hmm. Mm. Do you think that stories influenced you in becoming a scientist? Oh, absolutely. When I was young, I always gravitated toward either nonfiction or fiction books that were related to science, um, just because that's what I was interested in. And, and again, like I said, sort of Jurassic Park veered me toward biological sciences and science, you know, I think probably space camp might have made me want to be an astronaut. But then, you know, that was before Jurassic Park. So I, I went in different directions. (laughs) That was definitely one for me, too. I watched Space Camp and I was going to be I was going to be an astronaut Mm -hmm. and save the world. And I want to say another influence was um, the abyss. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. The abyss was like, I would like to discover our friendly neighbors under the sea. What is down there? I still don't know. People Um, don't know the way that it makes you sort of imagine what could be is not that dissimilar than science. You know, when you're doing science, you're making a hypothesis. You don't know if it's true or not. It could be totally fiction, but your job is to figure that out. And scientists tell stories all the time. So loving stories and having that drive you to become a scientist is not, again, that different from doing science because to come up with a hypothesis is almost telling yourself a story. Hmm, I like that. Yeah, I think there's an element of being curious about the world in both of them. So I tell kids in the creative writing camp that I run, you know, you need to ask why, and then you need to fill in that story. You need to Mm -hmm. be constantly curious about the world around you and make observations and then fill out the story to make that world real. So it is a very similar, I guess, way of thinking because it's curiosity, observation, and creativity. You have to be creative to be a scientist. Mm Mm-hmm. Keep in mind that science permeates everything around us and and being you can be a scientist, you can write about science, you can read about science. And I'm still a scientist, so I haven't stepped foot in a lab in an amount of time that I won't mention. <laughs> in um, beep years. <laughs> I think, you know, being trained in science made me a better writer, made me a better observer of the world, and I wouldn't trade it for anything. I It's an integral part of all of my successes and who I am. That was Dr. Erica Gable-Berg, PhD in biophysics and a science writer for Scientific American, Chemical and Engineering News, Diabetes Forecast, and other major publications. And then we'll talk with Mike Mullen, author of the Ashfall Trilogy, Darla's Story, and the forthcoming Surface Tension, which will be released by Tanglewood Press in May of 2018. So we're talking today about the connections between science and storytelling and the similarities between scientists and authors, talking about curiosity, observation, creativity. So who better to talk about that with us than you? Well, I don't know. Probably a scientist, but (laughs) hey, I'll talk about the author side of it anyway. (laughs) I'm Mike Mullen. I'm the author of the Ashfall Trilogy. Uh, It's about a teenager struggling to survive and find his family after the Yellowstone supervolcano erupts and plunges the world in this horrible natural disaster. And so uh, clearly I had to do a lot of research in order to uh, write accurately about uh, the eruption of the Yellowstone supervolcano, and that included reading a ton, 
talking to geologists, begging geologists to read my manuscript and critique it. Uh, a lot of travel, uh, visiting uh, the locations where my book is set, and uh, and other sorts of things. So while I'm not a scientist, I do spend a lot of time uh, researching my books and trying to get the science in them uh, as correct as I can. So did you set out to write a book with a lot of science in it? No, you know, my idea was just to write a, write about the, the Yellowstone supervolcano. I read uh, another book, Bill Bryson's A Short History of Nearly Everything, and learned about the supervolcano. I thought, oh, my gosh, that's really cool. Uh, I don't know why I thought that a global disaster sounded really cool, but uh, maybe that's uh, <laughs> some of the uh, sickness in, uh, in the creative mind there. But, yeah, I did. I've always loved reading disaster novels. I've always kind of wanted to write one. But it had always seemed like all the good disasters had already been done. You know, there are great books written after fires and floods and hurricanes and tornadoes. But uh, at that time, there were no other books set in the aftermath of the supervolcano. So I decided to, uh, to, to do that. So what was the most fascinating line of research that you came across? What did you just really get to dig into that you loved? Oh, that's kind of an interesting question. You know, the most interesting stuff probably was uh, was related to uh, not to geology, but to sociology. How do humans organize themselves in the aftermath of a disaster? How good would things be in some places and how bad in others? And I found a really great book by a uh, sociologist, Rebecca Solnit, uh, called A Paradise Built in Hell that was uh, incredibly influential in my thinking before I uh, wrote Ashfall, and I, I highly recommend it. It's um, it's it's written for a popular audience, but uh, she is a, a renowned sociologist. It's, uh, it's very well respected. Um, but it's about how uh, humans organize themselves after six different disasters, major disasters over the last century. And just fascinating. And I read on and on and on about that. And then that kind of led me to uh, the question of would there be uh, cannibalism in the aftermath of a disaster this large? And how soon would that happen? And how bad would it be? How widespread would it be? And so I spent some time researching, of all things, cannibalism. And that was a fascinating <laughs> line of research, too. Uh, yeah, lots of uh, kind of uh, dicey admissions here. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I read a lot of uh, work by uh, various epidemiologists, um, studying, uh, mostly studying the Donner Party, which is fascinating because, you know, uh, we know exactly how and why everybody in the Donner Party served, uh, died and uh, exactly when they turned to cannibalism. Um, and so there's all these wonderful contemporaneous records that people like to research. So uh, that, that, those were probably the two lines of research that most captured my attention. <laughs> Any cannibal uh, fun facts? Any quick bites? <laughs> yeah, well, I don't know. The book that then, I mean, after reading uh, some of the work on the Donner Party, I then I read a book called Collapse by Jared Diamond, which is a companion to his Guns, Germs, and Steel is about why societies succeed. Collapse is about why societies fail. And it was sort of an interesting feature of that book is almost every society describes as, as failing, as falling apart, ultimately turns to cannibalism at some point. It's uh, a little bit depressing, <laughs> actually. Something to look forward to, I guess. Yeah, right. Well, I hope not. <laughs> One of the things that I like, we've had you here at NIU uh, to talk to students, and I like when you talk about who would and would not survive a disaster. You're kind of like a reverse Oprah. You would die, and you would die, and you would die. So <laughs> it gets their attention, right? <laughs> yeah. So, so how do you how do you determine what's your what's your parlor trick there? Great at cocktail oh, parties. 
So that's uh, that's uh, based off that research I was talking about on about the Donner Party, uh, and I can uh, look up the researcher and the, the link to the research if you'd like uh, later. But it's uh, and it's actually published by the uh, National Institutes of Health. It's pretty easy to find via Google too. Uh, but anyway, uh, this researcher looked at who died in the Donner Party and and why, and it turns out, uh, and he's an epidemiologist. And it turns out that if you were under six. Uh, you were eight or nine times more likely to die than the average person. Almost everybody under the age of six died. If you're over 35, uh, only one person over 35 survived. So you're, again, eight or nine times more likely to survive. Uh, so I always pick out the older people in the crowd and say, you, you die, you die, you die, right? That's one way I pick. <laughs> and then the second way I pick, the other thing this research found was if you're in that sweet spot between the ages of six and 35 and you're a woman, you're about twice as likely to survive as a man. Uh, and so I disproportionately pick the uh, young men in the audience to die and tell the young women they'll survive. Uh, you know, obviously, I'm just guessing, but uh, they are about twice as likely to uh, survive. And then there's inevitably questions, usually from the, uh, the young men in the audience, why? Why am I going to die, right? And uh, there's a couple uh, explanations that have been proposed. One is takes it from um, the standpoint of just uh, mechanics. Uh, women have more body fat than men as a population average. Men have more muscle mass than women as a population average. So uh, women need less fuel to survive and have more. Uh, therefore, they tend to survive at a disproportionate rate. Another explanation looks at it from an evolutionary biology standpoint and says, uh, you know, women are essential to perpetuating the species. Uh, men really aren't. We need a few of us around, but uh, in general, we're superfluous. So we form the cannon fodder. When there's a you know any kind of major disaster, we die at disproportionate rates. Both those explanations have been proposed. The uh, last thing that predicted, and this is the one the one I actually found most fascinating, who would survive a disaster where there's a famine component like the Donner Party, uh, and why is people who had family with them were about twice as likely to survive as people who are alone. Which to me, I take to mean that the will to survive is every bit as important as the means. Well, and that's what I think is so interesting about the book Ashfall is you could have gone really deep into the science, but you really went into the relationships of the characters and how they worked together and you could see that will to survive. And yeah, and actually Alex was, you know, on the verge of dying when he met Darla and he would have died had he not met Darla. He was very badly wounded uh, and literally just searching for a uh, calm place, a hole to hide in uh, while he died. And instead he was lucky enough to find Darla and then uh, finding her then gives actually both of them ultimately the will to go on and survive. Neither of them would have survived without the other. So find a friend for the end of the world, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> so statistics aside, do you think do you think you would make it? Are you a prepper? Uh, you know, I, I do uh, prep to the extent that I've got uh, enough uh, water, uh, rice and beans stored to last about three weeks. Uh, when, when we've had really bad regional disasters in the United States, Katrina being, uh, I suppose, the, uh, the best example. After Katrina, the people got help the slowest. The last people to get help uh, were, were on their own for about three weeks. So if you're, I think it's wise for everyone to be prepared for, for about three weeks. And it's easy to do. You know, you need about 21 gallons of water per person, about a gallon a day. That's, you know, obviously not doing any washing at all. That's just survival. <laughs> Um, and then you, you just need uh, some big bags of rice and beans, and you need to rotate them uh, occasionally. Uh, so it's it's pretty simple to do. As far as uh, you know, the kind of prepping that 
uh, lots of people who read my books do to survive the you know the end of the world as we know it as they call it uh, no I don't do that uh, my plan is if, if my book came true if we experienced the end of the world as we know it I have this uh, very complicated detailed uh, plan I suppose we can make time to share it here you ready <laughs> yeah I would die uh, <laughs> It's simple, and it's kind of liberating to think that uh, you know if, if what happens in my book comes true, yeah, yeah, I, I die. It's just, I, I've had a a good and decent life, and uh, and you know at some point it's going to come to an end, and uh, and I don't know that I want to survive something like uh, like what's in Asheville. And plus, uh, it's really unrealistic for me to think I'm going to survive. I, I mean, uh, looking back at the statistics on who survives and why. Uh, I'm over 35, one strike against me. I'm male, two strikes against me. And while I do have uh, lots of family around, uh, all of them are older than I am. And so uh, I'm very unlikely to have uh, family survive the uh, the disaster. If something like, uh, in a very, very unlikely event, with something like uh, what's in my book comes true, uh, my goal, I hope, would be to uh, live out the remainder of my life in a way that's consistent with my values, helping the younger generation to survive. Hmm. And leave the apocalypse to the young cannibals in love. Yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> us old people, we don't. I don't know. I always, I, occasionally, I catch one of these uh, prepper shows on, on cable when I'm in a hotel or something, and uh, they're ridiculous. I mean, they're all old white guys. None of them are going to survive. They're <laughs> themselves. And they all have plans to survive on their own. Well, humans aren't solitary creatures. Even the you know the archetypal mountain men didn't survive on their own. They they went out into the wilds for six months at a time at most, and then returned to civilization. We do best in uh, tribes, you know, groups of uh, fifty to two hundred people. Uh, so, yeah, yeah, no, the, the the whole sort of archetype of the survivalist is is mistaken at its core. One of the reasons I love talking to you is that you always have all these facts at hand. Did you see yourself as a writer or as a scientist when you were a student? Um, well, you know, for a while there was in high school, I went to this really cool uh, summer program for physics. Uh, and uh, Dr. Jerry Kaplan taught it, and it was through uh, Purdue University, but they met in uh, IU, and it was like a two-week physics summer camp, and I just loved it. Oh, my gosh, I loved that, and I thought, oh, I want to definitely want to be a physicist, and towards the end of that uh, program, uh, Dr. Kaplan took me aside, and he said, you know, uh, Michael, I used to go by Michael back then, I don't think you're, you're, you're uh, how did he put it? He put it much nicer than this, but essentially what he said, I don't think you're quite smart enough to be a physicist. Oh. But you should write about science because we need a better science writers. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> And, you know, so I was a little bit crushed uh, about, you know, my physics dream coming to an end. But, uh, but yeah, I've, I've, I've always uh, loved to read and write. And I've always kind of had it in the back of my mind that at some point I might uh, attempt to become a writer. I never did really become a science writer. But obviously science informs my fiction in a major way. So I guess, you know, in, in sort of a sense I have. And, and I, I enjoy learning more about science and uh, trying to get it right. Uh, I'm sure I don't always, but I do my best. And uh, and then just spreading uh, you know, information about science in my talks. I do lots and lots of talks where I talk about the geology of asphalt. And even in my general talks, I usually uh, include 10 minutes or so for the uh, geology nerds in the room. 
You talk a lot about determination in your talks with students. Yeah. So and and grit, and I think that definitely comes across with Alex and Darla. That they it is so much about their their will to survive and their drive to keep going where others would stop. I think that happens a lot in science. It, I think it happens a lot during the writing process. Do you want to talk about why some people are successful while others fail? Yeah, I mean it's 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 well, I mean the important thing is to is to fail, but to fail in the right way, to fail and keep trying and trying and trying and trying in some kind of systematic way. I mean that's what scientists do, right? There's a, isn't there a famous example of Edison trying some 4000 filaments before he figured out the one that would work in his light bulb, right? And the same thing is true uh, among writers. Uh, you know, so often I talk to uh, people who want to be writers and I'll ask them, uh, so how many how, you want to you want to write novels? How many novels have you written? Well, none. You know, how many of you started? Well, none. No, you've got to start. You've got to fail. <laughs> you've got to learn from those failures to be able to write a good one, right? So the key isn't. I mean, we aren't really. Uh, we don't have grit. We don't strive uh, in order to avoid failure. We strive so that we can fail, learn from our failures, and try it again. And I think that's really key to both science and writing. Well, I think you bring up a good point. It's not just the failing. It's the moving past failure. Exactly. You have to you have to fail, learn from your failure, and continue. I don't think I could have written Ashfall if I hadn't written Heart's Blood, a young adult horror novel uh, I wrote right before Ashfall. I'd written other other books in the past, but that was the immediate one, previous one, and uh, it never sold. That you can't buy it anywhere, thank goodness, because it sucked. Oh my God, it was terrible. Uh, but you know, I learned a lot in writing it. I learned I wasn't really ready to try uh, multiple character viewpoints. I, I, you know, I learned something about my own limitations as a writer. And so when I sat down to do Ashfall, I really, I, I changed up my writing style. I went from being a pantser, a fly by the seat of your pants plotter, to being a plotter, as somebody who plans out the writing ahead of time. I simplified lots. Uh, Ashfall is a way simpler narrative than what I was attempting in uh, Heart's Blood, and. Um, and the other thing I learned is I really focused on, uh, you know, some of my weaknesses in characterization. Spent lots and lots of time just studying characterization, really working to get deep, deep into Alex and Darla's heads. And, you know, it shows in the product. I, but I don't think I could have done that had I not spent a year and a half working on a novel that ultimately didn't work right before that. Uh, you can't learn that stuff in isolation. You learn it by doing it, by trying it. Uh, just like, you know, you can't know the filament doesn't work in the light bulb until you hook it up and see it burn. Yeah, exactly. So were there points in your writing life when you thought about giving up when you were doing the Alex lay down and look for a place to die kind of thing? Yeah, I mean, I've, it's it's uh, it's 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 a difficult process. It's kind of not not so much in the actual writing. Um, you know, most days I kind of enjoy that, but the the process of trying to get published is really difficult and soul sucking, as I'm sure you're aware. Uh, you know, the rejection upon rejection upon rejection. Even Ashfall, a book that sold really well and has won all kinds of awards, was named one of the top five YA novels of 2011 by NPR. It was rejected by every single literary agent that saw it. Uh, so that really really is a process of grit, of falling down, getting kicked, and yet getting back up and submitting it again, submitting it again, trying again. So yeah, I, the, that process, uh, there, there were certainly times during that process when I kind of wanted to quit. So I, how I, did I, you, how did you get back up? Well, you know, after Heart's Blood, I submitted Heart's Blood to three literary agents. And of course, all of them said no, and they were right to say no. And I think I sort of knew in the back of my head that it wasn't very good. And so I quit after three. And that was probably a wise decision at that point. That's the other thing, you know, I want to say quitting isn't always 
bad. I mean, if you're if you're pushing at something that's never going to work, uh, you know, trying to sell heart's blood to uh, the traditional publishing industry, yeah, there's a point at which you need to quit and start on your next novel, <laughs> right? And so I did that. Uh, but once I'd finished Ashfall, I, I just really felt like I had something that was worth sharing uh, and that needed to see the light of day. And so I promised myself I would submit to at least 100 literary agents before I quit. The, the deal I, I made with myself was that uh, I couldn't quit till I'd, I'd gotten 100 rejections. And so I, you know, compiled a list of my top hundred uh, literary agents and put them in a spreadsheet, sent that out in batches of five to twenty literary agents. Got rejected by all of them at some some phase. I did a lot better than with Heart's Blood. Some of them read the whole novel, some of them read part of it, uh, some of them rejected the query. But at the same time, I'd gotten leads on a couple of publishers uh, and sent them the manuscript. One of them still hasn't responded, <laughs> <laughs> and the other one was Tanglewood Press. Uh, the good news is, uh, you know, despite the, the difficulty of, of getting published, the good news is that you only need one yes. Yeah, I think a lot of young writers have trouble with revising and knowing when you're right and you should be submitting and knowing when, yeah, this isn't quite ready or this this just needs to be put on a shelf and I need to go on to the next thing. So so what's your process for writing, revising and and knowing when something is done? Sure. So uh, the first draft I try to uh, just keep as rough and loose and chaotic and, and undisciplined as I can because I'm trying to be as creative as I possibly can. And I don't want to, you know, bog myself down in a lot of analysis or sort of deep thought about the writing. I just want it to be purely creative. So my first drafts are usually an utter mess and I show them to no one. I uh, will do a second draft and sometimes a third, and then I show my work to my wife, who is a great critic, uh, really can uh, tear my work up. And for some reason, that uh, for most writers, you, uh, the advice is never share your work with your significant other, because it can really damage that important relationship. But somehow we've got uh, a relationship where that works for us. Um, and then later I go out to, in the after the fourth or fifth draft, I go out to critique group or beta readers or uh, with my forthcoming book, Surface Tension. I also went out to lots of, I guess, sensitivity readers, they're called. I don't know, just people who are similar to the people in my book to see if I'd had it right. And then, and then you just have to listen to their feedback. And especially when you're hearing the same thing from several of them. Uh, you really have to pay attention to that feedback. Uh, you really can't, or at least I haven't figured out how to know if you're ready. Uh, the, something called the uh, Dunning-Kruger effect comes into play, especially with writing. And this dogs a lot of new writers. The Dunning-Kruger effect is a psychological effect that basically it states that uh, people who are new to any particular field generally rate their level of expertise as much higher than it actually is, whereas people who are very experienced in a field uh, generally rate their expertise much lower than it actually is. Uh, so if you graph that, it kind of makes an X between their the expertise you think you have and the expertise that you actually have. Uh, and so as a new writer, you very often think your work's better, uh, and, and most new writers go through this, I think, than it actually is. And so you have to have outside readers to tell you one, that it sucks, because it probably does, and two, <laughs> why it sucks. And then once you become a, a more experienced writer, I think that becomes less and less important. I've talked to, you know, Michael Grant about this, uh, you know, and he's written, oh, more than, I think, 200 books, uh, many of them on, in pen names, uh, under pen names as uh, contract work when he's getting started. He wrote uh, some of the Sweet Valley Twins books under a female pen name, believe it or not. <laughs> uh, 
Yeah, which if you've ever met Michael Grant, 6'3", bald and, you know, hugely built, uh, he's just blows your mind, blows my mind anyway. Uh, but but anyway, yeah, he says, I talked to him about, you know, that whole critique process. He's like, I don't have time for that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, he's at the stage where uh, he maybe doesn't need that outside critique as much. New authors need it badly because right. you can't accurately assess your own work. And it's probably true. I mean, the Dunning-Kruger effect has been shown to be true in many, many different fields. I'm not specifically aware of studies of it in scientific fields, but I'd guess that's probably true in most scientific fields, too. That as people enter the field or as they're brand new in it, students uh, tend to think they're better at it than they really are. Whereas if you, you know, ask somebody who's studied it for 20 or 30 years, uh, they'll rate themselves as much as needing to know much, much more and being much less of an expert than they actually are. You know, it'd be interesting to see how that research connects with the whole um, imposter syndrome. You hear about those people, especially in academics, who suffer from imposter syndrome, where they just feel that someday somebody's going to go up to them, even though they've, you know, done all this work and they've done research, they're going to look at them and go, you don't belong here. I have found you out. You are an imposter and you do not know what you know. Yeah, I'll bet that is connected. Uh, I mean, because that's basically, you know, it says we get insecure uh, or less secure than we should be, the more expert we are. Because mm-hmm. the expert really learns what they don't know. <laughs> and you know, it's the same. I think it's the same in writing. I mean, uh, it's funny. I taught at uh, Midwest Writers Workshop, uh, what was it, last week, two weeks ago? And, um, you know, even while I'm teaching the, uh, the YA intensive class and then giving uh, talks to the whole group uh, later, I, you know, I'm attending other people's talks and just learning tons and just realizing how much I still have to learn about writing. <laughs> and yet I think most people would look at me and say, oh, you're pretty well published. Your books have sold well. Uh, lots of people enjoy them. You're an expert. And yet I would probably say, yeah, yeah maybe I'm starting to get there. <laughs> Give me another 10 years. <laughs> hmm. <laughs> well, I love that mindset, though, just knowing that you need to know more and that you can always make it better. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. My forthcoming book, Surface Tension, for example, is, I mean, I went back to the multiple viewpoints uh, that I tried in Heart's Blood, and I figured, well, maybe now I'm a good enough writer that I can pull it off. And certainly some people who have read it think I did pull it off. I hope so. <laughs> we'll find out when the reviews come in. Yeah. So when does the world get to read Surface Tension? What's that one about? It's, it's uh, you know, it's got tons of science in it, too, but it's uh, it's more uh, related to uh, aerodynamics and uh, uh, chemical engineering. I had to consult with a chemical engineer for this book. Mm. <laughs> you have to be on some terrorist watch list. I know. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm sure. I, I hope the NSA isn't reading my emails or my uh, Google search history. That would be uh, just kind do of you- terrible. <laughs> Do you want to it's give us a research. quick uh, rundown on what that book is about? Yeah, sure. So it's about a uh, Jake, a uh, 17-year-old who is on the cusp of becoming a professional bike racer. He, he's really good. He's you know, at the top uh, Category 2 amateur racer. And uh, he, he does road races like uh, you know Tour de France and Criteriums, and that, that type of race, right? So anyway, he's out at 5 a.m. training, uh, as he does, on a remote road near the Indianapolis International Airport. And he sees a group of men who turn out to be terrorists. And they're causing a plane crash from the ground. And he's the only one who knows how they're doing this, how they're crashing planes. And they notice him watching them, and they want him dead. So that's my elevator pitch. <laughs> Sports, science, plane crashes. Yeah, bike Intrigue. riding. Intrigue. <laughs> bike yeah. riding. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Well, that's um, very exciting. 
really, uh, I basically, I mean, the book came about because I thought of a really devious way to crash an airplane. Why I was thinking about that, uh, boy, I really hope the uh, NSA isn't reading my emails. <laughs> it's terrible. Uh, I, I don't know. You know, you just read all these uh, different things. I actually had read several articles about the Bermuda Triangle and uh, some research that was done in Australia about how the Bermuda Triangle may work. Uh, and then um, connecting that with some some other stuff I'd read. And I thought, oh, wow, there's a book idea in that. And I talked to my brother about it, who's an electrical engineer. And he, uh, he said, uh, don't write that book. I want to fly again. <laughs> but I kept thinking about it, thinking about it, and thinking about it, and it just uh, felt like it needed to be written. And and plus, I figure if I've had the idea, there's probably uh, hundreds or thousands of other people who have. That's uh, probably, I hope, nothing new. <laughs> we'll see. So, what do what do scientists think when you ask them to read your YA novel? Um, you know, the the, the people uh, I've talked to, like the uh, two geologists who read uh, Ashfall, Aaron Stowes and uh, Pete Matthews, were just really kind and helpful and uh, and, and critical. Uh, I mean, they made dozens of, of suggestions. I mean, right down to like, you know, I don't think a creek choked with ash would look quite like that. From, you know, big picture stuff to a little nitty gritty, you know, sentence or two details in the book. Uh, in general, I've had, I've had great luck. They've been uh, super helpful and nice. And, uh, and and certainly sometimes they disagree with me uh, about the science. And one good example is Ash in Winter. Um, before it was, uh, <laughs> I wrote it in... Uh, 2011 and 2012 uh it was published in or, or 2010 and 2011 it was published in 2012 and then in 2014 uh this research comes out that suggests that uh yellowstone doesn't put out nearly as much sulfur dioxide as a normal volcano does and therefore would have much less of a global warming or global cooling effect than a normal volcano um, so, you know, despite my best efforts, mistakes creep in. <laughs> <laughs> well, but that's an interesting point with science is because they don't just figure something out and then let it sit. They're always, right. you know, it always builds on it, itself. It, yes. Right? And, and the frontier of knowledge is, is, is being pushed out, you know, hourly. <laughs> Uh, which is amazing, which I mean, is kind of disheartening, I guess, if you want to be this scientist, you've got all this stuff to learn to get out to the frontier and contribute anything new. I mean, I think it's getting tougher and tougher and tougher to contribute, although certainly there's, uh, you know, there's there's more areas to contribute in than ever before. But but yeah, it, it changes constantly. Um, the, the It doesn't really affect my work, but um, there's new research on the uh, size of the magma chamber under Yellowstone. There's new research on the hotspot that changes our understanding of there's stuff all the time. Oh, there's new research on uh, the speed with with uh, with which pyroclastic flows move, and I'm really glad I didn't ever try to depict a pyroclastic flow in any of my books because I would have gotten it totally wrong. <laughs> Uh, you know, it would have been right based on the science of the time, but the science does change really fast, which is great. I mean, that's uh, that's part of the beauty of it, right? And you just heard our interview with Mike Mullen, author of the Ashfall trilogy, Darla's story, and the forthcoming Surface Tension. So Kristen, <laughs> yes, Kristen, yes. Whether you're a writer who writes about science or a scientist who writes, you're following your curiosity and looking for answers. Your initial questions might be different. How do I make a dinosaur? Or how fast would people turn to cannibalism in the event of a natural disaster? But that hunger for knowledge and human flesh is there <laughs> in both cases. So teachers, what are you doing to spark curiosity? It takes one great phenomena, field trip, or book that could change the course of a student's life. And if you're looking for ways to use Mike Mullins' books in the classroom, check out stemread.com for ideas and lesson plans. 
And be sure to check out his new book, Surface Tension, from Tanglewood Press, which is releasing in May 2018. You can follow Erica on Twitter at Erica Gableberg to see her work on everything from edible insects to cutting-edge diabetes research. Thanks to our guests, Dr. Erica Gableberg and Mike Mullen. You can check out our show notes to connect with our guests and learn more about their work. The STEM Read Podcast is produced in collaboration with WNIJ. Support for the STEM Read Podcast comes from Northern Illinois University. Your future, our focus. Thanks for listening.